I'm thrilled to be here today with Michael Sonnenfeld. Michael, you've got an amazing story and I want to get into a lot of different aspects of your background with you. But before I do, one of the questions that I ask every guest, and there is no right answer, is what is a family office? So my question to you is what I ask everybody, what's a family office? Great. Thanks for having me, Ron. Uh, so obviously there is no single definition, but it seems to me that when you're talking about family offices, what you're really talking about are two distinct services. One is what I would call family services. It's where reservations are made, cars are bought, mortgages are taken out. It's where the family can rely on one or more people to do the functions that when they can afford to have somebody do it, they can offload and whether they have a physical office or it's a secretary, and then the second and generally most important function is the investment function of managing and investing the family's uh, financial assets. And you know, you see all sorts of variations, but I would say that most of the family offices that I know become what they call family offices when they add the investment function to what is basically an administrative support function. Got it. Okay. So just for a minute, as far as your background is concerned, uh, you have a family office now. You obviously didn't start there. Um, can you take a minute and kind of go over your background and how you got from once you started working to the pinnacle of, you know, of having a family office? Sure. So I went to MIT. I, I had dropped out of the University of Michigan at the age of 16 and went to work for a couple years in a warehouse that was uh, owned by the father of a friend of mine. And one thing led to another and we started getting serious and I decided I didn't wanna be the proverbial son-in-law, so I went back to MIT. But when I graduated from MIT, I went to work for my father-in-law who had a very large real estate business. And one of those assets was a building called the Harborside Terminal. It was an old industrial warehouse that had been built in 1929 uh, as the largest building in the world when it was built, eclipsed only by the Pentagon. But at this point, it was sort of a lumbering white elephant that was an old industrial warehouse, but it happened to be on the New Jersey waterfront directly across from the World Trade Center. And so uh, from the time I was 17, I had dreamed one way or another about converting it into a modern office complex with condominiums on the piers and office towers on the, on the main portion. And one way or another, I was able to acquire that singular building at a point in time where it was really an old rundown industrial warehouse. But I had a vision, uh, my partner and I, it was, I was lucky enough to find a partner who bought in. He was twice my age. We were able to buy it. Each of these are stories in themselves. But we were able to buy the building knowing that we could not really afford to run it as an industrial warehouse for the price we paid. But if in fact we could convert it into an office condominium retail complex, the price we were paying for the unfinished building was so cheap that the additional money needed to finish it would make it a home run. And fortunately, within six months after buying it in 1982, Bankers Trust, then I think the eighth largest bank in America, came and they needed to put a worldwide data center there. They took 15% of the space and put in a $75 million state-of-the-art data center that represented half of their global data needs. And once they did that, we were off to the races. 
because the other 85% now became unfinished office space rather than underutilized industrial space. We became the largest commercial renovation uh, in the country at the time, which I kind of thought was exactly right for my first project. How, how old were you at the time? I conceived of it when I was 17. I acquired the building with my partner, David Fromer, when I was 25. And by 31, we had basically completed the first million feet. We had the project well underway, and we sold it uh, when I was 30 or 31, right before the market crash in 87. Timing is everything. So let me ask you this. You know, a lot of, we work with a lot of different family offices and everyone sets up a family office for a different reason. Why did you set up a family office? Why not just, you know, have your money managed by some of the top people and just, and just let and outsource it. Why did you set up your own family office? Sure. So again, to distinguish between the administrative functions that supports our lifestyle and the investment functions, I've always had a team of people to support you know, whether you call it executive assistance or however you do it, we've had a three or four or five people to support our entire family's needs. But about uh, 20 years ago, I had a liquidity event that created enough money that I had to decide how I was going to manage it. And I sort of managed it on my own for a number of years and then realized that I personally am not as good an investor as I am an entrepreneur but I don't want to outsource all of the investment functions uh, because I wasn't sure of the mix between entrepreneurial investments and uh, more traditional passive investments. And so about five or six or seven years ago, I hired what was then the first, and now we have two full-time portfolio managers who have differing functions to uh, take control and manage the portfolio. One of the things in Tiger 21, which uh, is so important, is after people have had a liquidity event, they don't really have a clear sense of what their role in managing money is. And I've learned that to be the CEO of your own investment company is the key, whether you outsource some of it or control all of it, owning the CEO function, owning the oversight function is what's most critical. So although we have 75 different investments and many of them are outsourced to other managers, I'm the CEO of my investment company. We still determine all of the policies and make all of the investments. And uh, even when we're outsourcing it to another type of manager. Got it. And again, I have a lot of questions. I want to dive into the Tiger 21. But right before we do that, one question I have, which is really interesting, and and people who hear the statistic really scratch their head, only 25% of family offices actually make it to the second generation, 10% make it to the third, and 5% make it to the fourth. Right. Question to you is, why is that? There's two very different answers that I think are at the heart of it. And by the way, in about six languages, because I wrote a book on entrepreneurship and I did this research, in uh, Japanese, they say from rice paddies to rice paddies in three generations. And the uh, Dutch say from clogs to clogs in three generations. And we say from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And clearly what's going on is many people are not focused on equipping their children with the skills of good stewardship. And sometimes it's because it didn't occur to the parents in a first generation wealth creation 
scenario that they needed to teach their kids had to be skills. And, you know, James Grubman, who's one of the great psychologists that deals in the family multi-generational space, talks about that the skills that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur are mainly around self-reliance, whereas the skills that it takes to build family offices multi-generationally, you have to coordinate first with your siblings at the first generation or second generation, and then with your cousins at the third generation. And those skills of learning from one another and partnering are very different. So as an example, in our family, my children are second generation through me, but third generation through my wife who comes from a real estate family. And their skills about working with each other, both their siblings and their cousins, are things that I never had to contend with. So one of the reasons it's so hard to sustain multi-generational wealth is that you really need to work hard at the skills it takes to uh, be good stewards. Got it. So question I have now, I want to focus on Tiger 21 for a minute because it really is an incredible organization. First of all, for the listeners that, that aren't familiar with it, what is Tiger 21 and why did you start it? Sure. So Tiger 21, oddly enough, this year is 21 years old. And it was started with the simple idea that if you're a first generation wealth creator, primarily entrepreneurs, who has generated through one mechanism or another wealth in the $10 million to billion dollar investable asset range, you may be facing a unique challenge at the moment that you go from being a wealth creator, a manager, an entrepreneur, an inspiring leader, and you sell that business, and all of a sudden you have a pile of cash, uh, a, a, a mountain of wealth, but you have no business anymore because you've become a passive investor and you've gone from wealth creator to wealth preserver. Now, this is exactly what multi-generational families hone their skills over generations. But in that first instance where the entrepreneur cashes in, you have the most dramatic transformation because the skills that you need to be an extraordinary entrepreneur very often predispose you to be a mediocre to lousy investor. It has to do with concentration. As an entrepreneur, you're concentrating everything on a single opportunity and milking it for what it's worth. As an investor, you want to have a diversified portfolio. A, an entrepreneur is passionate about what he's doing. An investor better have the skills to be somewhat dispassionate across the portfolio so that you can look at each position on its own and liquidate it when it needs to be done. So you could go through a lot of things, but most entrepreneurs, when they go through this transition to investor, think about, it's kind of like watching the paint dry. They're such action junkies that it's really hard to get into the pace of being an investor. And so Tiger was started on the premise that the best way to go through this transition is not to do it just from advice from people who are selling you advice, but to actually learn from peers who have been on the same journey and might be a few years ahead or a, a few years behind. So we fall within a world of organizations called peer-to-peer -peer learning organizations. And our main job is to bring 12 to 15 extraordinary 
peers, entrepreneurs, when our membership has an average net worth, it's just a number of about $101 million, that's one in 10,000 by accomplishment. So when you fill a table with 12 to 15 peers, all extraordinarily accomplished, and people who want to learn and teach, learn from one another and teach what they know, there's a kind of magic. And if we're doing our job, the facilitator that's part of our team, he or she is called a chair, that facilitator is simply setting the table for these peers to learn from one another in a way that no other setting allows for this kind of intense, carefrontational, not confrontational, open, confidential feedback and insights that uh, literally our members report they just don't get through any other interaction. So how is Tiger 21 then different than YPO or Vistage? YPO and Vistage are fabulous organizations. Oddly enough, they're both, I think, in the mid-20,000 members globally, but both of them are primarily focused on the life of the CEO, a young president's organization. Uh, It turns out in YPO, you have a bit of a bias towards second generation leaders because uh, the requirements tilted towards young presidents of family businesses, but by no means is that the only category. And Vistage was similar, but uh, also CEOs. And those are the two great colleges of this universe. Tiger 21 is the graduate school when from YPO or Vistage, after five or 10 years of honing your skills as a CEO, you sell the business. If you're the owner and the business is large enough and you net enough money, you then can become qualified for Tiger 21. Now, there's a lot of overlap. We have members of Tiger 21 who continue to be members of YPO and Vistage. And uh, we have members of Tiger 21 who continue to be CEOs of their business, but that's not the majority. And you have YPO and Vistage members, more YPO, who have sold their business but continue to stay in their forum because they have such an intimate group. Uh, so there is overlap, but these are the two great organizations that we're proud to count ourselves among when you talk about the great peer-to-peer learning organizations. So is it fair to say then that Vistage and YPO focus more on helping you grow your business, whereas Tiger 21 helps you more on growing your net worth? Is that too simplified? The first is true. The first two are focused on the life of the CEO and being an effective CEO. Each has ventured a little more widely to the whole person, but the essence of both of those organizations is honing your skills as a leader. It's lonely at the top. And by having peers, you learn. Once you've sold the business, you then start looking up and going from success to significance you start having a much more wider aperture through which you're thinking about your own life. You're trying to reconnect sometimes to your kids who you might have lost touch with in the prior 10 or 20 years while you were building your business. You might want to reach out to your spouse if your relationship is charged. You all of a sudden have time for philanthropy and thinking about society. And you're no longer a wealth creator. You're a wealth preserver. Now, There are many gradations of wealth preserver because people would like to grow their wealth 
on a after inflation, after tax basis. So they are growing their wealth, but wealth preservation becomes dramatically more important after your liquidity event than while you're growing your business. And that's where Tiger focuses. Got it. Now, one of the cornerstones of Tiger 21, and it's something, a term I hadn't heard before, is called a portfolio defense. Two things. One, what is a portfolio defense? And why is it such a critical part of Tiger 21? So the portfolio defense is, is the following. Every year, the reason we limit groups to 12 to 15 is the groups meet once a month for a full day. And each month, one member of the group does what's called a portfolio defense. They've prepared a set of documents that are the balance sheet, income statement, performance reports on their investment assets. And they filled out about a 20-page questionnaire that goes into issues. What is the meaning of your wealth? What is the purpose? It's, it's just fascinating. One, one example, when they say, who is your wealth meant to support? In other words, define the family. Some people say my family is my spouse and I. Some people say my family includes my kids. Some people say our family includes our kids and our grandparents. Some people say, no, that includes our spouses, our nieces, nephews, siblings. Some people say it's our whole community. So that's just one example of how people define the purpose of their wealth. But the portfolio defense allows a person in a unique setting, say to 12 peers, here's how I'm thinking about my investment portfolio. Here's how I'm thinking about risk, how much cash I have, how much insurance I have. Do I have too much biotech or too much leverage or not enough uh, foreign currency exposure? Or should I have commodity exposure? And they create a set of documents that have been honed over 20 years so that for 90 minutes, you get to explore with peers who are equally competent and successful but bring uniquely different perspectives to help you think through the issues of could you do anything better to have your portfolio perform in ways that are consistent with your particular goals and views. So that's the portfolio defense. And the reason why it's the glue, the secret sauce, if you will, is first of all, the preparation is extraordinary. Most members who come to Tiger have never gone through that kind of process. So obviously it's different the second, third, fourth, and fifth year. But that first year, you're pulling together information that you generally have not shared often with yourself, often with your spouse, more often with your lawyers and accountants. You've never seen it all put together in a holistic way that allows you to take a look at it through a perspective and then hear how fellow peers do it. And you have to be open to the experience. People can feel very vulnerable. First of all, most people don't like talking about these things. But once you do talk about it and you see others in the same position, now you've created a bond and an openness between two people that very rarely exists. So if I meet a Tiger member, very often happens from a faraway city and they come and we have lunch, in five minutes, I'm having a conversation with that person that I could have with almost nobody else in the world, even if I'm meeting that person for the first time, because we've both gone through this experience of a portfolio defense. We're both bound by confidentiality. But obviously within the group, you start to understand people in a way that no other friends or family within our respective lives 
fully appreciate what is revealed through the portfolio defense. So you've got to create an incredible area of comfort where people are comfortable, they, they're okay feel, feeling vulnerable because I would imagine talking to some people about what's your net worth or how much are you worth or how much, you know, et cetera, several people would probably rather talk about their sex lives than, than this because this yes. is very, very personal. I would say that um, the magic of Tiger 21 is all in our members. In other words, when you look at how the value of our franchise is, it's really in our members, number one, and in the fact that we're able to create a trusting, transparent, totally confidential setting so that when people walk through the door into their monthly meeting, it's like you've gone through some kind of looking glass because within that room, you are comfortable and willing and able and maybe even desiring to share things with 12 people that you may not be sharing with almost anybody else in your whole life. And our entire culture is around protecting that precious asset of trust and confidentiality. So obviously as a community, we have to do a lot of things to ensure that members have absolutely no question that our agenda is to create, for lack of a better term, that sacred space and defend it at all costs which is really uh, a lot of what I do. So vulnerability, I would imagine, has got to be paramount to everything that, that happened in, the, in these meetings. Mm -hmm. With Tiger 21, you know, this is a family office podcast, and Tiger 21 and family offices, there's certainly overlap. Um, I know that in Tiger 21, you're looking to start a family office division or a part of family offices within Tiger. Can you touch on that, why you're doing that, and kind of where you think that's headed? One of the amazing things about reaching 770 members, it's, it's hard because when you think about our marketplace of people who have a net worth in excess of $10 million, although net worth alone would not qualify somebody for Tiger, there's about 1.8 million people globally in that community. But when you start thinking about first generation wealth creators and you have to have people who have egos that they can check at the door and people who like the process, it kind of winnows down, but still there's a pretty big market beyond 770 members. We're in 31 cities around the globe today. In four countries, we project to be in 15 countries uh, five years from now. So by the time we've reached this size, we're starting to have sub-communities that are large enough that we can build really great programs. And some of those sub-communities are, uh, about three years ago, we started an annual women's trip because we now have over 50 women who are members of Tiger. And by the way, when people say, is that an adequate representation? The answer is no. But if you look at the number of people who have created $100 million of net worth, and what portion of them are women, we're closer to the right proportion than you might imagine. We also have uh, interest in having younger members create some subgroup activities because we have a growing number of members under 30. And if you're under 30 and within Tiger, you're looking at the world very different than if you're uh, 60 or more. The largest number of members that we think there's a real interest in is for members 
who have wealth that's large enough that they either have created family offices or they're contemplating family offices. And uh, as you know, the, the definition maybe a generation ago for a family office was you needed minimum assets of $100 million. And today, some would say it's probably closer to 200 million, maybe the number is even higher. But with Tiger, our average net worth is about 101 million. And I think that puts about two thirds of our member below 100 million and about a third of our members above. And for that one third of members is about 200 and some members. They're starting to think about a family office for the first time and trying to figure out when does it pay what are the things that a family office will do? And so we're gonna start building events and groups or forums around people who either have or would like to do family offices, but use the same methodologies that we have within the rest of Tiger to have people uh, be able to learn from one another what the best practices are and to get ideas about how to tackle problems that are unique to building and running family offices. So then this is a fairly big initiative for you for what you're planning to do going forward. Well, we expect that it will be, but uh, until it's off the ground, it, uh, it's too early to tell. Sure. And then question, let's look out three to five years. Where does today, where do you see Tiger in three to five years? So we like to say that we can grow horizontally and vertically. And what we mean by that is today we have planted groups in 31 markets around the globe, although it's limited today to uh, three groups in Switzerland, three groups in London, and then about 10 groups or so in Canada, and the balance of our 61 uh, or two groups in the US. But they constitute 31 distinct markets. So in many markets, we have two or three groups. In New York, we have about 12 groups. In any market where we have more than one group, we have a chapter that comprises the multiple groups. So in Miami, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, we already have three groups uh, in every one of those markets, about to have one in Montreal as well. And so we can start doing programming for the chapter where in addition to the monthly group, there might be a quarterly chapter event that could be a speaker, or uh, any number of events. So the first thing is that when we look out around the globe at the 31 markets we're in, we think there are a total of about 60 markets that our members and potential members wanna work in, play in, visit, or invest in. And those define sort of the 60 markets and we're kind of filling out the next two, three, four, five year plan so how do you plant seeds? For us, every group starts with a chair. That's the facilitator who's a member of our team that uh, has to have really exquisite skills to be able to manage one of these groups. So even though we might have a 60 market five-year plan, if we don't have the right chairs, we won't grow into a market until we get the right chair. But roughly 60 markets around the globe and very roughly Typically, we want to have a minimum of two groups in a market, but what happens is after you get the first group, there tends to be another group and another group. That's how these grow organically. So if you got to 60 markets, it's probably something on the order of 150 groups, more or less, if you will. 
So that would be the horizontal expansion. And I should say that of the 29 markets that we're going to go in, a majority are outside of North America. So you'll see a much greater footprint in Asia and uh, in between and in Europe as well. So that would be part of it. Then the vertical growth is right now we have an offering that is primarily the monthly group, the annual conference, and some of these events that I mentioned, the forums that will be for family offices or the women's group or young members or philanthropy or biotech. We have lots of different uh, ideas on the table, but there's a suite of products and services that our members really, really respond to. So as an example, we have a, an insurance policy that's a, an umbrella insurance policy for certain types of liability. And it's so popular that about half of our members participate over 300 people. And we have four and a half billion dollars of insurance in place, making this one policy the highest value policy of its type in the country, as we've been told. And the reason why our members like it is if they get that kind of insurance on their own at the upper level, it costs about 30,000 a year, but through our joint policy, it's about 15,000 a year. And so they can save $15,000 a year just by being a Tiger 21 member. By the way, our annual dues are 30,000. So they offset half of the cost just with this one insurance policy. They owned it already, they just were able to get a better rate through Tiger 21. So we think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So we think there's a whole suite of policies or products or services that by aggregating the buying power of our members, we might be able to deliver really unique value. The three things that we look for is either something that's unique and a member couldn't buy or access on their own, something that's uh, bespoke in the sense that it's a unique combination of things or that it's a value uh, that uh, they couldn't get. So as an example, uh, in a, when we tested this program a few years ago, we had a, a marketing arrangement with Tesla. And um, five years ago, when Tesla was much newer, um, they never have discounted. And so we had to add a fee, but I bought my first Tesla through our program, I paid $1,000 over list, but the difference was there was a waiting line of six months and I couldn't find a way to get a Tesla in sooner than six months. Through our program, I got it in three days. It happened, this was in early August. So I had the Tesla for half the summer uh, out at the beach, whereas if I hadn't gone through that program, it would have taken six months. So that's an example where the value is not in the discount, but it's in the access. So we, we think there's a whole suite of things that uh, our members would really uh, like if we can aggregate the buying power of our membership. And then one of the things that's interesting about Tiger is that I know as opposed to um, YPO and Vistage, you actually not only don't discourage, you actually encourage members to visit other chapters, other cities. Absolutely. Why is that so important? So... <clears throat> Originally, Tiger 1.0 was, there was a group in New York, had 12 people. There was another group in New York, had 12 people. They had no connection between the two groups. And eventually, we started realizing that the network that we were creating was as valuable as the experience of the private group. 
So today when you're a Tiger member, maybe 60 or 70% of the value that you get comes from your confidential monthly group that is mostly the same people showing up every month, but everybody bound by confidentiality. Um, Tiger 2.0 was communicating one to many. So that was the conference. We create a conference that's now CNBC broadcast uh, last month for the day from our conference. It's sort of a mini Davos, but it's the one place where people can look at the entirety, the holistic view of life after a liquidity event. So we have speakers on all sorts of financial topics, but some of the top doctors in the world, some of the top psychologists, people talking about sports, um, politics. It's a very holistic kind of conference, but uh, there's no other experience like it. But it's only for Tiger members, and members come in from all over the world and get a chance to meet each other because half of the fun is not just the speakers, it's the ability to meet Tigers around the world. So increasingly, we've understand it's not just members within a group that's Tiger 1.0. It's not just sort of broadcasting things to the entire membership or an experience for the entire membership that's 2.0. Tiger 3.0 is really member to member networking across the network. And as a result, every group, uh, other members are welcome. So if you're a member in New York and you're in London, you would call up and say, can I stop in the group for a day? Or if you're a member in uh, Switzerland and you happen to be in Phoenix, you stop in because you're already vetted, you've already signed confidentiality agreements, you're already known to our organization, you're welcomed with the full privilege of membership to integrate right into the group that day. And uh, this seems to be one of the growing unique benefits of Tiger that we think is really uh, creating a, a, the most powerful network. I'll just say that when a member gets a call from a fellow member who they've never met or heard of, and somebody identifies them as a Tiger member, we hope every member picks up the phone immediately and helps. It could be that a child from a member in California, God forbid, is in an accident in London. The first thing that they're gonna call is the Tiger chair in London and say, who, which of your members could help? Or maybe you have an investment opportunity uh, in the solar business and you heard somebody in Seattle is uh, in the solar business. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a business need or a private need. We hope when a Tiger member calls a Tiger member, they, they drop everything and try and help. Steve, in essence, I mean, you've created basically a global village. That would be a nice way of saying it. I hadn't heard that term before, but it certainly is applicable. Last question I have for you. And again, I could go on for hours because what Tiger does, is, it's so unique and you've done such a wonderful job in creating this. Um, tying it back to the family offices, you know, family offices, and we represent about a hundred different family offices. They're very siloed. They're very fragmented. And in general, they're very inefficient in general. So with what Tiger 21 does, where they have these groups and they get together, it seems as if the, the, the experience that you create in Tiger may help family offices who are feeling siloed, fragmented, distant, and create these little communities. Is that part of the thought process with the family offices? Well, to be, to be very specific, you know, I'm always impressed when you go to a concert and you see a 
Madonna or a Rod Stewart or a uh, the Rolling Stones, or you go to a gymnast, and if anybody remembers Nadia Comaneci. And what I mean by that is when you look at the best things, the best things, they seem so simple, they seem so easy. What you don't see is Mick Jagger working out six hours a day and uh, Madonna working out six hours a day. It's really hard work behind the scenes to make something complicated look so easy in front of the scenes. That's a little the story of Tiger. Our most of our members come to a meeting and they say, how hard an organization is it to run with 12 people around the table and uh, a facilitator just uh, playing host. It seems so easy. Well, it turns out we've been honing our craft for 20, 20 years and we dissect every part of that day. We try and look at how to maximize our members' time and make this the most valuable experience. And the reason I'm answering your question this way is within the family office area, we think there's a lot of the same kind of functionality that our expertise can reveal for the benefit of the uh, participants. We think we can set a table uh, using the techniques we've honed over 20 years that will help uh, the first hour members who are involved with family offices uh, better run, better conceptualize, better set the table for their family office. But we think eventually it'll attract even more members to Tiger for whom this is their primary challenge. Got it. And then the last question I have, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about Tiger, what's the best way to do that? Well, certainly the best is, I mean, it, it starts at www.tiger21.com. But uh, if, uh, if you sign up there or you know somebody, uh, we're a person-to-person uh, -person organization and uh, people are willing to, happy to get in touch with any of our people. Uh, you can get it on the website. Well, Michael, this has been terrific. You've created an incredible organization. Congratulations on what you've done and can keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.